Welcome to Lyme Time. I'm Allie from the Tick Chicks. We are all more than Lyme disease and chronic illness, and together we stand with you to overcome and rise. I'll bring you closer to the experts in cutting-edge treatments and even a few unexpected ways of healing. I'll ask the questions you want answers to regarding Lyme disease and successful ways of getting you closer to 100%. We are in this together and will not be defined by Lyme. My guest today is Daisy Ilchowska, and she is a nutritional therapist, researcher, and author, as well as the director of her own online clinic called Optimal Health Nutrition. Daisy specializes in working with clients with autoimmune disease, mycotoxin or mold illness, as well as Lyme disease. She overcame herself three autoimmune conditions mycotoxin illness, and Lyme, plus multiple co-infections, which redirected her clinical interests. In May of last year, Daisy published her book, Lyme in the Limelight, which investigates the link between Lyme disease and numerous autoimmune conditions, including brain autoimmune conditions, such as MS and Parkinson's. Daisy firmly believes that autoimmunity is one of the big missing links when it comes to Lyme disease treatment. Daisy also has contributed a chapter on Lyme disease and autoimmunity to the third edition of Infection and Autoimmunity Textbook, published by Elsevier, due out in August 2023. Welcome, Daisy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here. You're going to cover a lot of topics that I think are are. Um, they deserve our attention because you do so much research and I want to know the latest and sort of what's going on out there with uh, several interesting topics. And I'm just, just delighted that you're here. First of all, I want to throw it out there that you're based in the U U UK mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but that your online clinic is open worldwide, correct? It is. Yeah. I have many international clients. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Okay. Well, to get things started, I wanted to discuss Lyme disease and insomnia. Now, mm -hmm. I suffered from this. It seemed like with the onset of Lyme disease, my insomnia went through the roof. And I often talk to people who have Lyme disease and we have something in common in that you're so critically fatigued during the day. I mean, it's like you're walking around with concrete boots and you've got that debilitating fatigue and you finally get in bed at the end of the day only to find that you are wide awake. And I just kind of wanted to know your opinions about that and what the research is showing with insomnia. Mm. It's a very, very common symptom. I also experienced it myself when I was dealing with Lyme disease and some 41% of people with Lyme disease would, would experience insomnia. And I think in a way it's the most crippling symptom as well because you just need to rest. You just need to detoxify your brain and sleep off some of these symptoms, but yet you can't. So there are several mechanisms linked to Lyme insomnia here. There isn't just one thing that triggers the insomnia. So one of the main mechanisms is uh, excessive production of cytokines or these kind of inflammatory messengers that happen with the infection. 
in which case, and yet not sleeping increases a particular cytokine called IL-6, which makes everything else worse. So it's kind of a vicious cycle of inflammation. Um, so cytokine is uh, a kind of storm is one of the main things linked to insomnia. And in this case, taking some anti-inflammatories, uh, good anti-inflammatories like curcumin, like quercetin, can really, really help with that mechanism of how um, the inflammation is driving insomnia. There are other mechanisms as well. I noticed with a lot of Lyme clients, men and women, um, sometimes there is uh, iron deficiency or anemia, sometimes caused by Babesia, which is a common co-infection. Babesia is a parasite that's really hard to test for, but, um, you know, I find it on, on, on some of the tests that have worked out uh, are quite reliable, uh, this side of the pond. So um, that's one of the easiest things to actually correct. Uh, if you correct your anemia, taking something like a really good iron supplement that can really, really um, help insomnia. Um, you know, having a really good sleep routine uh, and regime, you know, staying away from blue light, which blocks melatonin, uh, sleeping in cooler rooms, uh, having nice and stable blood sugar levels, because again, that inflammation can drive your blood sugar levels to fluctuate. Um, and a lot of people with Lyme sometimes can um, experience something called nocturnal hypoglycemia, where they blood sugar levels fall too low um, and that kind of um, affects the liver. So that, that can be one of the, the other mechanisms via which people are struggling to sleep. Um, congested liver, if you wake up mostly around two o'clock, it could be that your liver is just um, overburdened and it often is with Lyme disease. And we need to really do things to support the liver, supplements like milk, milk thistle, NAC, um, you know, castor oil packs and things like that can really, really help. Sometimes I also see parasites driving insomnia. Parasites are very common in, in Lyme disease. And that's when you're getting actually the very, very early awakening um, at 4 and 5 a.m., especially around the full moon, and you're unable to go back to sleep. So there are several mechanisms you have to address. There, but I find generally... Uh, good sleep hygiene, controlling the cytokines with things like uh, curcumin and quercetin, um, supporting the liver, some more specific supplements like magnesium glycinate, um, uh, GABA and L-tannine as well can be really, really helpful for sleep as well. But that I must say most of my clients, and I've experienced it myself, I'd say insomnia is one of the most persistent symptoms so it takes quite a lot to deal with it and identify these mechanisms and sometimes you have to address all of them in order to be able to get some shut eye unfortunately uh, I agree with that it's it's a vicious cycle I remember when I first went to my first doctor who uh, told me I actually did not have fibromyalgia which I had been previously um diagnosed with, but this was the first doctor that really went intensely into my blood work. And he said, you have to get your days and nights separated. You cannot confuse it anymore because there are times when you're so fatigued at 
noon or two in the afternoon or four in the afternoon and you can't do it anymore. You have to lie down and close your eyes. And, but then it starts, it just starts that cycle again. So I, I, I think it's just a vicious cycle that you have to take control of and break it. And these are all wonderful. You have to, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, if some people can sleep throughout the day, it's good. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's good to have a rest, but you know, we all follow these circadian rhythms, you know, sleep is the most powerful between um, 10, 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. And we need to just try and, you know, rest whenever we can throughout the day, but just trying to restore that circadian rhythm and sleep at night is really, really important for recovery. Another important thing that happens during sleep and Lyme is that your lymphatic system and your brain shrinks and detoxifies and we know that the brain is very very affected when it comes to Lyme disease you know ultimately the bacteria aims to your brain can cause a lot of havoc um, and that's really really important so sleep is just one of these things you have to work on sure your your body's already fighting so hard to keep your immune system healthy and then with insomnia it's almost like it's just breaking it down again on a daily, you know, you do things well during the day and then at night it just kind of takes it back down to level zero again. Um, what about, what, what about 5-HTP? Have you found any success with that? Yeah. For some clients it can work. Um, melatonin can work for some clients. Again, it's a bit of trial and error with some of these. Um, melatonin can really work usually at a bit higher doses for some people. Um, some people just don't feel any difference. Some people do really well with CBD oil and things like that. Um, so in terms of some of these other supplements, it's a bit of a trial and error. Yes. And I found that I, I, I can go through cycles of things that work and don't work. And then I can come back to something that I've taken a break from for a little while and then come back to that. Oftentimes I want to mention people um, have sensitive stomachs. They can't swallow pills or whatever it is. And um, if you have to take yourself off a supplement or a pill, I have found that that high potency CBD cream, if I put the cream on right before I go to bed on my shoulders and my neck area, it really, really helps with my with mm. sleep. Um, there are also some peptides out there, I think, that can help that as well. But the main thing is to just get a hold of that insomnia and sleeplessness. Maybe put your telephone in a different room to charge at night and to really take care of, of yourselves because this is one key, if you can master it, you'll be a huge step ahead in your recovery. Yes, it can really help with recovery. And things like Epsom salt baths as well, some types of meditation also can help you widen down, if you, especially if you're feeling a bit anxious um, and you've got these intrusive thoughts, which sometimes happens with Lyme and anxiety and things like that. So these are other things that can, can also help. Yeah. And I love that you've mentioned everything that's pretty much over the counter and not prescription grade. Um, pre prescription grade often comes with its own side effects. Mm -hmm. And then you can confuse those side effects with your actual Lyme disease. So it gets complicated real fast. So I love, sure. I love your, your treatment, um, treatment options there. 
The second thing I'd like to talk to you about, and, and I know it's a big topic of your own research, are mycotoxins and how different kinds of mycotoxins can cause different types of illness. So what are you seeing with in terms of Lyme disease? Which comes first, the Lyme disease or the mycotoxins setting off the Lyme disease? Do you have any uh, so um, weakening the system so you're more susceptible to Lyme or is Lyme dormant and then that triggers it? Tell us, tell us from the beginning just how it starts and then we'll go into treatments after that. Clinically, I believe that Lyme can be dormant for a long time and there are other things that can awake it, trauma, stress, COVID, um, but mycotoxins can be a big trigger uh, for reactivating dormant Lyme disease. And that's because they affect the part of the immune system that deals with bacterial infections. They really suppress the immune system. I mean, they are um, detrimental to health, many, many levels, you know, most of them are carcinogenic and really bad for the kidneys and the liver and, and you know, depending on the different types but they can have a real immune suppressive effect. So I clinically see a lot of people that have reactivation of Lyme after the exposure of mycotoxins. And in terms of my protocol when dealing with uh, Lyme, I always test people and actually start with mycotoxin detox first. I find that and because the symptoms of mycotoxin illness as well and Lyme disease can overlap so much, the you know, the brain fog, the fatigue, even some of the more neurological symptoms like buzzing sensations on the skin that you get with Lyme co-infections, such as Bartonella. And I find that if you detox the mycotoxins, if you're uh, in a in a clean environment where you're not constantly exposed, and that's a challenge, especially here in the UK where the climate is quite damp, mm. um, about sometimes 30 to 50% of the symptoms can disappear just with the mycotoxin treatment. Mm. And that's kind of the relatively new thinking in terms of Lyme disease, treat the mycotoxins first. Otherwise, it's a bit like trying to, to drive a car with flat tires because, yes, the antimicrobials and, you know, the antibiotics might work, but you still need that um, function of your immune system. So mycotoxins definitely come first. Um, that's that's my, my perspective. And... I find mycotoxins in 99.9% .9 of people with Lyme disease. Um, okay. And I, I I don't know whether that's due to specific, specific genetic uh, variations. You know, there is a lot of um, talk about a spe a specific um, genetic SNPs like H HLA and um, inability to detoxify environmental toxins and and things like that, which then makes you also more resistant to treatment, um, treatment resistant Lyme disease. So I don't know what the exact link is, but um, a lot of my clients with Lyme have my, got mycotoxins and they have mycotoxins at quite high levels as well. Okay, so it's, a, as I understand it, it's a relatively easy um, urine test in most cases. And can you talk us through, through what exactly you do, you are searching for? What are the biggest mycotoxins? 
So actually, um, I do a combination of two tests and we send them from the UK over to you guys in America. There's two labs in America. I don't know whether I'm allowed to mention them that yeah. I use. Uh, yeah. One being the Great Plains lab, the other one being the Real Times lab. Um, you have to do a bit of a challenge protocol before that because some people are just really bad at detoxifying. So I get people to say glutathione and milk thistle for at least 10 days um, before they do the urine tests. Um and then we send them off for analysis and the two labs analyze something like half a dozen types of mycotoxins. Um, and I find some of them, one of the labs is better at picking up some particular types of mycotoxins than the other one. Um, but we look for mycotoxins like um, ocrotoxin A, zero alanone, you know, some of these we know that come from water damaged buildings. Um, mycotoxin like zero alanone can come from contaminated grains as well, most often corn. Um, and, you know, people show up with different things. I'll tell you, ocrotoxin A is probably one of the most common ones mm -hmm. um, that, that I see on tests, but I sometimes get a combination. Um, and those are all due, due to mold. Yes, the, the mycotoxins are spores um, that appear from mold. Um, so whether it's mold, mostly in water damaged building, um, and it could have been past exposure, you know, it could have been exposure from 10, 10 years ago. That, uh, but if you, at that point, if you are immunosuppressed or there were really high levels of mold growing, and it could have been mold in your basement or in your loft uh, where you don't see it, don't necessarily smell it, but it's still affecting you, you can actually get colonized by these. And even if you don't live in a water-damaged building anymore, you're not exposed to these, they you become the water-damaged building, you become the host of these. And that's why... If some people may be thinking, oh, yes, I was exposed to these mycotoxins, but it was 10 years ago now, you know, I'm well out of it, the place. It's still worth testing, especially if you're dealing with Lyme disease and autoimmunity. Oh, wow. I really actually never knew that. Mm -hmm. So you can be walking around even if you change apartment buildings or homes and still carrying that with you. And so if that's the case, I'd like to know what what you recommend in that extreme if you're actually the host what what treatments are out available to those people so i must say the treatment as long as the first thing is minimizing exposure so you can't get well in a sick environment and sometimes you have to get proper mold inspectors to come and check your home that you're not currently exposed um and then you take different types of binders um depending on the types of mycotoxins that you have I generally like to use combination binders, but there's things like particular probiotics that can help, things like Saccharomyces boulardii, um, eating a lot of uh, colorful fruit and veg can also really, really help with the mycotoxins. These bioflavonoids that are contained in, in fruit and veg can, can really help protect you. Um, you down the line, uh, you know, if you have particular mycotoxin zero alanone, that means that you're likely to have candida, which usually doesn't show on stool tests. So you have to treat the candida as well alongside mycotoxins. Uh, you have to take these nasal sprays as well, because often you'll have colonization of the sinuses and the nasal cavity as well. So it's it's treatment can take, um, I'd, I'd say, average levels of a couple of types of mycotoxins 
can take about six to eight months, um, as long as some people can tolerate the binders. But in some cases, uh, high levels of mycotoxins combined with infections such as Bartonella can bring on things like mast, mast cell activation syndrome, can bring on things like extreme histamine reactions, in which cases it's quite difficult to detox because your body is in this fight or flight state, your immune system is um, overstimulated. So it, it, you tend to react even to the binders. And so you, you then have to add another protocol, perhaps a low histamine diet, uh, further detox uh, protocol before you can even start on those binders. Um, so in those cases, it can be slightly more complicated. But generally, if you don't have the severe histamine issues or muscle mass, activation syndrome, it's fairly straightforward um if you're not in a moldy environment hmm. interesting interesting and what what are your favorite binders for for people with mold illness i um i like combination binders so binders that combine things like activated charcoal and zeolite um fulvic and humic um acids um there is a gentle binder that i sometimes use with clients that I'm not able to uh, tolerate it. It's based on carbonated bamboo. It's called. Uh, it's by a brand called Takisumi Supreme. So I sometimes use it to start with more sensitive clients. Um, eating plenty of fiber as well in itself can be a binder. Let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So that's that's really important. But if you have more than one type of mycotoxin, you just have to use a combination binder because some some activated charcoal is better at binding particular types of mycotoxins where zeolite is is good at binding others that's very helpful and um in terms of um i'd like to speak a little bit also about some brain uh, dysfunction when that happens with Lyme disease. And we all joke a little bit in the Lyme community about brain fog. And it is a real thing. And it's very hard to get out of that once you're sort of uh, being exposed to brain fog. And, and oftentimes, we don't know what brings it on. And uh, so can we talk a minute about brain fog, and then we'll go on to the more serious conditions of the brain? What are uh, what brings on brain fog, and what are your recommendations for treatment? So again, it could be the extreme inflammation that's causing the insomnia that's bringing the brain fog. So anti-inflammatories, um, but Lyme is known to kind of cross the blood-brain barrier and cause a lot of havoc. So sometimes that could be some kind of autoimmune process in in the brain that has been started. Or it could be very, very simple things like um, electrolyte imbalance. Electrolytes can be absolutely amazing when you are having a Herx reaction or when you're having a, a brain fog. And they are underrated when it comes to, you know, supplements to take um, when it comes to Lyme disease and mycotoxin detox uh, as well. So it could be something like electrolyte imbalance. It could be dysregulated blood sugar levels again there could be several mechanisms in there that have to be addressed that's why you know addressing things like diet and nutritional deficiencies alongside you know treatments for the eradication of the bacteria are so so important things have to be done 
in conjunction, um, just taking, you know, antimicrobial to deal with the Lyme is not going to get you well if you have been doing with, dealing with uh, chronic Lyme disease. Unfortunately, sometimes you have to take heaps and heaps of supplements. Um, I know at my, you know, at my worst, I was taking between 25 and 30 supplements a day. Um, I was too. I was too. And I, I just had to, at the end of the day, I had to just trust that they were working because it's not, it's not like taking a prescription medication where you can feel it immediately happening in your body. It takes time for supplements to activate and to become, you know, sort of the winner in your body. And, uh, but I, I now only, I, I take about six a day now and uh, it's just really preventative. Absolutely. And it's a good idea to, you know, have these because even if our diet is really, really good and we've, we're healthy now and with minimal symptoms, there's still some supplements that are a really good idea to take. Things like glutathione, you know, can be really good for brain fog, can be a really good supplement to continue taking. It's um, the master antioxidant that I find that a lot of people with Lyme disease and mycotoxins, they don't produce it. I've had myself tested and I have gene SNPs which prevent me from producing glutathione and that's why I'm I'm very good at uh, <laughs> you know accumulating environmental toxins and that's why I was so bad at shaking off Lyme disease so I mean glutathione can be fantastic for things like brain fog um, also coenzyme Q10 which supports your mitochondria so it can help with um, energy levels but it can help with brain health as well. Wonderful, wonderful. And I always never fail to mention that a nice, uh, cool plunge, even in your bathtub, for me, it does help with the brain fog. If I just need something immediate, or if I have to go out at night, and I'm just feeling terrible by the end of the day, I'll take I'll just run the cold water in my shower or fill my bathtub up with cold water, take a quick to one to two minute plunge and it really helps um motivate that vagus nerve get it uh relaxed and get some um sort of beautiful things running through my body so that also helps me yeah that's a brilliant one and it can help reset the immune system as well it's brilliant um some people cold water or infrared saunas work for others or actually alternating between the two really cold shower after an infrared sauna is what was really good for me mm -hmm. yeah that's a great combination so let's talk a little bit about um when the brain gets really infected and triggers MS and Parkinson's when you have Lyme disease and it starts going into other areas. Um, what is your research talking about with MS and Parkinson's? Is, is there a link between Lyme and also what is the latest that you're finding in terms of treatments and protocols? So I think the whole, because obviously Parkinson's and MS are autoimmune conditions where your own immune system starts stacking parts of your body, in this case, parts of your nervous system. And I believe that that's a huge underrated element when it comes to Lyme disease. So it's not, in most cases, it's not just the infection that's causing the symptoms. It's the infection interacting with your immune system that's causing the symptoms. And sometimes clients may find that even when they've 
eradicated the bacterial infection, they're still having these symptoms. And that's when autoimmunity comes into play. So I, I urge people and always explain to my Lyme clients that when it comes to Lyme disease, you have to treat the infection, the inflammation, and the immune dysregulation or autoimmunity element. That's really, really important. You know, with chronic Lyme, just treating the infection does not work. Okay. So in my research, I've, I, I was particularly interested because of my own experience, because my Lyme got really bad really quickly, um, sort of within days I had a twitching finger and then non-epileptic seizures. I couldn't walk in a straight line or say my name, extreme brain fog. And that that's what got me interested. Why did I get so bad so quickly? And it turns out because I already had three existing autoimmune conditions. I think my immune system was already dysregulated. And I think Lyme disease kind of that, that helped fast track Lyme disease, which can also lead to immune dysregulation. So that's prompted me to look at Lyme disease from this angle. And the research points out that the Lyme disease bacteria, it's, it's, it's very, very unusual and it's more complex than a virus, if you like, um, because it has got these um, different, different lipo, lipoproteins on its surface. So if you think about the COVID spikes, we all know about COVID and the 27 spikes that cause different types um of the infection with Lyme disease you've got these uh, 120 lipoproteins that can switch on and off depending on what the bacteria is trying to do and they tend to cross react with different parts of the body and different tissues so some of them can cross react with tissues in your thyroid and cause things like Hashimoto autoimmune um thyroid disease, some of them can cross-react with parts of your immune system. And that's one of the main mechanisms of how Lyme disease can trigger these multitude of autoimmune conditions. It has got the potential, you know, I've never seen anything like it before. Um, there is another mechanism of how Lyme disease can also trigger brain autoimmune conditions like MS and Parkinson's. And that's Lyme ultimately aims for your brain and when it crosses that blood-brain barrier, um, it can cause the immune cells in your brain to get overactivated. These are called the microglial cells. And they basically start fighting the, the, the infection. And in some case, um, they, they basically become overactivated and they can get confused and start attacking parts of your brain. So that's another mechanism that causes more specifically brain autoimmunity in um, in Lyme disease. So autoimmunity, I think, is a, is a huge, huge underrated element. So for me and my clients, it's really important alongside these protocols of eradication of the bacteria to apply immune modulating protocols because of that risk um, of Lyme triggering multiple autoimmunity um, and, you know, these autoimmune conditions, you can have the antibodies 10 years before there is damage to the tissue. Incredible. Incredible. And that's why it's, it's just, it's Lyme is linked to Alzheimer's, which is thought to be autoimmune, you know, Parkinson's, ALS or motor neuron disease, rheumatoid arthritis as well. I very often see it. Hashimoto, so many autoimmune conditions. So many, so many. And 
And what is your research showing in terms of reversing? In other words, if you get the label of having one of the bigger ones like MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, if you begin treating your Lyme symptoms in a way, in ways that we've just discussed, is there a possibility that you can reverse any of those? The research, unfortunately, is lucky in this area because it's really, really hard to do research online because of the unreliable testing and factors. But clinically, I see a lot of these symptoms and labels given to people. I mean, I've had clients with that have been told they've got two years to live and they've got ALS and you know, they're still alive and doing well when you actually apply the Lyme disease protocols alongside protocols for managing that autoimmune element. Mm. Um, so there is hope. I'm not saying that Lyme disease is the only trigger of these autoimmune conditions, but I'm saying that it's a big underestimated factor. You know, there's other toxins, you know, mycotoxins trigger multiple autoimmune conditions too. And when there's the combination of two, you, you're even more likely to, you know, there's heavy metals as well. They've got the potential and, you know, other things, but Lyme is a big, big under underestimated factor. It certainly is. And, and with our children being the number one uh, group being affected by Lyme disease, it it is just so troubling to think of the future because they'll get it. They'll almost immediately or soon thereafter, after getting it, they'll, their immune system is still strong enough to then have it go dormant after a while, if it's treated properly and, and with proper care and all of that. And then, but then there's still that first break in the immune system. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it just seems like, as they go on with their lives, there are more and more things that they might be susceptible to. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, autoimmune conditions have grown exponentially um, over the years. And I think that's, that's what some of these infections are, um, an underappreciated factor there. Um, I, I agree. And, and, you know, with, with Lyme disease cases on the rise, so you've got autoimmune disorders on the rise, uh, ADD on the rise, autism on the rise, and Lyme disease cases. It's just, it's sort of makes you wonder. <laughs> yeah, it's too much of a coincidence. Um, unfortunately, Lyme disease is not very well recognized infection here in the UK, which makes my job very, very difficult and testing is very unreliable. But I, I came across research that pointed that there could be still, even in the UK, there could be about 120,000 new infections a year. Um, in some countries in Central Europe, that's, that figure is about half a million new infections a year. And with um, with climate change as well, migration of birds and, 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 and other animals that carry ticks, I think you get you're now getting Lyme disease in in much cooler climates as well. Oh yes, um, and even more aggressive, even than Lyme disease. We we now have this uh, alpha gal, which is spreading. Um, it's it's still a little bit rarefied, but in the Midwest, I know that there are many schools that are now being alerted to. Alpha gal, uh, you know, it's sort of like having a peanut allergy, except they. Mm -hmm are now allergic to meat and meat byproducts. So 
there's a severe uh, issue with with what they can even eat. So anyway, there now the schools are being alerted if your child has something like that along those lines, which we didn't see ten years ago. I don't think. Not in not in these numbers. So, and then you know we can get go down the road of is it passed on through blood transfusions? Could it be possibly spread that way? Well, nobody's testing blood transfusions for Lyme disease. You know the suggestions that can also be passed from a mother to a child if untreated. That it can be part sexually transmitted as well. That's another thing. The two need more research, but as I said, research in, in Lyme disease is very, very sparse at the moment. Very, very sparse. It's just, although it's the quickest uh, growing vector-borne disease around the world, that you know, health officials here that don't seem to be very concerned. Yeah, we're we're. I think in the United States, we're catching on a little bit more now, possibly. Um, especially post COVID because there is long-term COVID, which basically feels like, you know, long haul Lyme disease. And so they're so similar in so many ways, though they're different, but I think it's, it's bringing uh, a lot of these things to the, to the surface first, for sure. Um, And test reliability. I know that you, you touched on this before, but are we making any progress at all with with Lyme disease? First of all, people that, yeah, people that may suspect they have Lyme disease need to know that no test is perfect. Um, I find that tests that rely on your immune system's response in creating antibodies are not very reliable because of that um, effect of Lyme disease on your immune system. So the test I find most reliable is microscopy-based testing. I personally, from the UK, we use a lab in Hungary that we send off testing to. So, And they've developed an AI that looks for the typical spirochete of the Lyme disease bacteria. And it's a very, very typical um, shape of the bacteria, only shared by one other bacteria, which is the syphilis bacteria. And there isn't much syphilis these days. So... Um, and I find that test the most reliable one because a lot of my clients have got this autoimmune element uh, that's there and uh, you can get a lot of false negative tests. I've had it myself. I had about three or four false negative tests and it was full mm-hmm. of Lyme disease. Um, and that's where you get the doctors telling you it's not Lyme disease. You know, we don't know what it is. Maybe it's in your head and that's where you get a lot of um difficulty even getting diagnosis and sometimes it can take 10 years and 10 tests and you're still not sure that you've got Lyme disease but for me in my day-to-day practice I find microscopy based dark blood analysis testing to be the most reliable and they are also reliable picking up these um more difficult to pick up co-infections like Bartonella and Babesia Babesia is very hard to pick up because it's all um the parasites so within your red blood cells as well. So um, that that's the main test I actually use um, in my clinic and alongside clinical questionnaires, because sometimes Lyme disease have to be a clinical diagnosis, you know, with chronic Lyme disease, you can have over 40 symptoms and, um, you know, 
when when clients come to you and they they tick a lot of these boxes or have been given previous diagnosis like chronic fatigue syndrome like fibromyalgia like rheumatoid arthritis that's um rheumatoid factor negative like ms uh, you know because you can have the same lesions that you have with ms with lyme disease on your on your brain on mri scans as well so you have to have that clinical knowledge as well as you know trying to find the best tests that you can well, thank you so much, Daisy, for your time. I've just loved our time together. I hope that we can do it again soon. Uh, your book, Lime in the Limelight, is now available at thetickchicks.com. And but will you also uh, let everyone know where they can reach you and how to contact you in case they want to go further with you? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, Ali, um, I really enjoyed our time together too. And hopefully, um, you know, some of these things that we discussed are helpful to your listeners. Um, so they can find out more about me at optimalhealthnutrition.co.uk. I have social media accounts at the Lyme Nutritionist and at Optimal Health Nutrition. Uh, my book, uh, Lyme in the Limelight, is also available on Amazon as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Are there any parting words that you would like to share with our warriors out there who may be in really bad shape right now? It's just focusing on these three main things when you're, when you're doing your Lyme disease treatment, that inf infection, inflammation, and immune dysregulation. If you see these as the main foundational things to focus on, and clear up, test yourself reliably for mycotoxins and start with those maybe. You know, if sometimes with Lyme disease, you get stuck in your treatment number 142, for example, and you don't know where to start. Focus on infection, inflammation, immune dysregulation and mycotoxins. Thank and you. you can do Thank, it. Thank you so much for your kind words and and good luck with everything. And we will uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you again for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me.